Our scripture reading this morning comes from John 15, 1 through 17. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command, love each other. The Bible has a lot of this imagery of God as a gardener. It goes all the way back uh, into the Old Testament, and it kind of goes all the way through, and then it's through the rest of the New Testament. There's this, this image that keeps coming up as God as a gardener. And when we lived as a family in uh, central Illinois, uh, we had uh, this house that was built in 1876. And since the year it was first built, there was this plot in the backyard that had been a garden. And it was kind of back behind what was our garage. It used to be um, more of a carriage house. It could fit, you know, a carriage with the attachment still on it, and I think there were stalls for four horses. And right behind that building, I don't know why the ground was so fertile, um, although they had four horses, uh, but there was this plot that was a garden, and it had been so, like I said, for, for over 100 years. Um, and we would plant tomatoes there, and there was no miracle grow going on. There was none of that. And and I kid you not, our cherry tomato plants, or we had grape tomato plants, they would grow up, and they would keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and they would get to 10 feet tall. Ten, and, and I can reach a, a ceiling in a normal house. I can reach an eight-foot ceiling. I could not come close to harvesting off the top of these. 
And when we really wanted to get as much as we could, we'd even have to bring out like a six-foot ladder. And even then, the plant was so large that I would get up high and I could barely reach the center to start harvesting some of the middle. And we had several of these. And, and during the summer, we loved to, this was like our salsa garden. So we had not just tomatoes, but we had the peppers and all the other stuff. And, and we would harvest, and we would get these big mixing bowls that we had in the house, and we would fill every one of them with just tomatoes and bring them in. I mean, you're like the people who are giving the tomatoes to the neighbors and all this kind of stuff, right? And, and this garden was just so plentiful uh, but as I got to thinking about this, I don't, I don't have much experience with vines, even though, I don't Murphy's isn't that far away, but, but I, don't, I don't grow any great vines at home. I've had like little vines on a trellis before, but, but I can picture these tomatoes, and, and these tomatoes needed these cages around them, right? When they were real little, we had one section of cage that would start, and then they would get taller, and you'd add another one, because modern tomato plants, as, as they get big and they get all the fruit on them, they'll just break themselves if they don't have the cage supporting them. So we had cages that would go up to six foot and, and it would help hold it and then there would be this know, plant growing through it and it would help have some kind of structure to it. And in the tomato plant, without the fruit on it, with just that height, it actually wouldn't be too bad. I mean, it would still probably flop over, but it wouldn't be too bad without the cage if the weather conditions were perfect. Right, if it was just calm all the time, if there was never any rain, if there was never any wind, if there was never anything else going on, the tomatoes could maybe be hold themselves up. Uh, maybe if they were leaning on a wall or something, they'd be able to, to be sturdy, but that's just not the world we live in, and it's not the world that my tomatoes lived in, and, and there was often wind, and there was thunderstorms, and there was rain, and, and there was all these other factors, and and if we just let the tomatoes be by themselves, they would just be collapsed on the ground. There would be no fruit that they would be bearing. There, there would be nothing. They would just be broken plants on the ground. And it got me thinking about uh, this verse some, because in our lives, there's sometimes storms that come. Right? Sometimes in our lives, there's, there's times that feel like there's heavy rain, or there's times that feel like, like the wind is strong and it's, and it's blowing on. And if we don't have anything in our own lives that we can build on, anything we can lean on, anything that helps create that structure around ourselves, then, then we would be like these tomato plants that just kind of crumble to the ground, fruitless, not doing any part of the potential that they have. But, but yet in Scripture, we're told here by Jesus what, what we are to be remaining in, what we're to be leaning on, how we're supposed to build our lives. So when the wind blows and, and when the rain starts coming down and, and we have something that we can find stability in, something that we can lean in, something that makes that not just crush us in our, in our own lives. And we're here in... Uh, several weeks in now to this sermon series on following Jesus, the sermon series called The Jesus Way, where we're looking at different things Jesus taught, different things in Jesus' life, and, and kind of looking at it and saying, what uh, does that mean for us as Christians? If we're not just Christians in name, but we're actually supposed to be like followers of this Jesus, followers of this Christ, then, then what does it mean to live this kind of life? And, and today... Um, it actually is kind of what does it mean to live this kind of life and, and build this kind of 
structures so that when the world happens around us, when the wind happens and when the rain happens and, when, and we feel that all affecting us, that, that we have some kind of stability, that we have something to lean on, that we're not uh, just, just collapsing to the ground. Before I get directly into this verse, and, and we are here in John chapter 15, uh, verses 1 through 17, but before I get into that, just a little background of what's going on. If you're not as familiar with, with where you might be here by John chapter 15, uh, we just had the first, or we're in the, this final week of Jesus' life. A couple weeks ago, we uh, preached on John 13, which was Jesus washing the disciples' feet. Uh, they're still in a, in a similar event. That was uh, at the Passover meal. Now they've left the meal. They've started to journey to the Garden of Gethsemane, to the place where Jesus will be betrayed. And uh, many biblical scholars think that this, this lesson that Jesus taught was on the way. So the disciples and Jesus, as you can imagine, they're traveling through Jerusalem. They have to get through the city. They have to enter out one of the gates. They would travel around the city up over several hills, and they get to uh, the Garden of Gethsemane. And, and on the way, Jesus continues to speak to them. He continues to teach them. They're, they're on the way to kind of the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, right? And, and the times are going to be hard. And Jesus, uh, it appears by what he says here, that he's, he's worried that they might not know what to lean on. This, this storm of life is going to be really strong for them, even, the, even this night. They're in for uh, easily one of the worst weeks of their life. They've been following this Jesus. They've been right with him. They've been close beside him. And they're in for, for a really hard time. And, and Jesus is going to teach them once again a lesson about what to do in those hard moments. Where to lean, where he can, where he can be with them. So, so before he's arrested, before he is betrayed... Um, they're on this journey, and it, as some scholars look at this, they kind of look at the journey that you can find maps. They have it all mapped out that he probably left for this gate, and, and they would have traveled this road that we know existed at the time and, and gotten to this place. And, and from where they're guessing they stayed, right in the path is the temple in Jerusalem. So, so many people think that on the journey they got to the temple, and it's one of the gates where you... You're standing at the temple. You wouldn't enter the courtyard, but you can see in through these massive gates. And in front of you um, is this curtain that separates kind of the more common area from a, from a more holy area. And, and this curtain is, is large, and it's, it's built up, and it's beautifully uh, described. Even in the Old Testament, we have so many descriptions of carvings, and it's, it's all this garden imagery that, that kind of harkens back to the Garden of Eden, imagery that that was a place where God was with people in a special way and here now the temple is going to be this place where God is with his people in a special way and and interestingly enough we have this account um, from maybe 40 years later there's this Jewish historian that's writing and and he's going to write about this and he's going to describe the temple in great detail and one of the things we can see in this writing is that there is carvings above that curtain, there's the roof line, there's the curtain, and in the space in between are all these, these carvings and this beautiful metalwork, solid gold of a giant grapevine 
that reaches in this whole area. And, and the historian who describes this, he describes each cluster of grapes as being the size of a human. Solid gold. So it, it covers this whole area. And what would actually happen back then, and we have records of this, what would happen is, is rich people throughout time that, that were citizens that lived in Jerusalem or in the surrounding area could donate money or even gold directly themselves. And it would go to uh, these artisans that then would add more vines and more leaves and more grapes kind of in honor of your family. So as the years went on and as the centuries went on, this grapevine actually continued to grow as God's people multiplied and there was more people and, and some of them were wealthy and they were able to give these gifts and the grapevines grew. And again, they're all solid gold over this. And, and I can just kind of imagine um, that, that Jesus, this is, this is potentially one of the places where he's stopping along the way. They're looking at the temple and Jesus starts talking to them about vines. And he starts talking to them about grapes and about how they're all connected and how, how uh, we are all like the vines and we need to remain connected to the source of our power and our strength with his God, our Father. And, and only when a vine does that can it bear fruit. And you can kind of just see this imagery that's happening, right? That, that this, is, this is what's in front of them. And then he starts to read to them. And, and interestingly, the, the reason it's on the temple is this image of a vine or, or vineyards goes goes way back into the Old Testament. It's a popular image, and it's almost always this image of, of the people of Israel. So it's all the people. God is a gardener in the image, and in the people, God's special, holy, set-apart people are, are like a vine that's growing, and it's supposed, to, it's supposed to bear a certain kind of fruit. It's supposed to look a certain way, and, and most of the time, in the Old Testament, most of the time, this is not a flattering thing when it comes up. Because most of the time, it's one of the prophets who's talking to God's people, and he's talking about the fruit that, that is not being seen. So, so often, it's a description of destruction. It's saying, you're, you're a vine, but you're not producing the fruit. You're not, you're not doing what you're supposed to do, and, and God is going to deal you know, in this certain way. And, and here's, here's an example, Psalm 80 7 through 9. It says, Restore us, O God. Make your face shine on us that we may be saved. You transplanted a vine from Egypt. You transplanted a vine from Egypt and drove out nations and planted it. You cleared the ground around it. And it took root and it filled the land. Here we get this image from uh, the book of Exodus, right, of, of God's people coming out of Egypt, and there's this vine, and it's been planted, and now it's filling the land, and it's supposed to be, in the imagery, producing a certain kind of fruit, and we can see that clearly. Isaiah 5, 3 through 5, you'll see it even more here. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem, and you people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard? Remember, he's speaking of the people. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I look for good grapes, why did it yield only bad ones? 
Now I will tell you what I'm going to do with my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall, and it will be trampled upon. And then not too many years later, the Babylonian army comes, and they trample on the land. And and they literally take many people from the land, and they take them away to Babylon. So, so when we get to this imagery that, that Jesus uses, this is not the first time this come up in the Bible. It, it might be the one we're most familiar with because we're Christians and we follow Jesus and, and we love the Gospels and, and we read this, but, but let's not be mistaken. When Jesus is talking to the disciples, this is, this is not the first time that they've heard of image, an image of a vine. That they've heard an image of a vine representing people and fruit and it's supposed to look a certain way. That they would have all of these narratives in their head, but, but it had always been the entire nation of Israel. And here Jesus is talking about a, a specific group of people. He's talking about his followers. He's kind of using this image and bringing it uh, to a broader place. This, this image, even in their own first century world, it's commonly used in other places in literature. It's actually such a common image for the people of Israel. Remember, they, they don't like have a drawn image of what God looks like, which is what a lot of ancient people would put on their coins. So if you're making money, you would put like your ruler, you'd put your God on the coin. What's on the coins from first century Israel is a grapevine, because that's who they are. So this, this is the, a very common imagery at this time. So, so with that in mind, let me read for you again what Jimeline read for you, and try to kind of keep that in the forefront of your mind and see what stands out. See if there's anything more that kind of pops to the surface uh, with some of this in mind here. Jesus speaking to his disciples. He says, I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch from me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Remain in me, and I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Jesus continues, he says, I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. Verse 7, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. And we'll pause right there. Here's a little Bible study 101. When words or phrases are repeated, we're supposed to notice them. (laughs) All right, that's like, that's like part of the design. So, so when we read this, it sounds a little repetitive to our modern ears. 
right? I mean, the third, fourth time that he's like, remain in me and I will remain in you. And, and then, then there's like a verse later and then it's like, remain in me and I will remain. Remember where they are. They're on their way to the garden. They're on their way to, to one of the worst weeks of their life. And then it will end with probably the best week of their life. But they don't know that yet. And Jesus is telling them over and over again, remain in me. Be steadfast. Lean. Lean on me. I am the connection, Jesus is saying. He's the connection to the Father. You you can't do this on your own. You will bear no fruit if you do it in your own strength. The vine only has power because it's connected to everything else. It's connected to the root system and it has has all of that that it can rely on and it can lean on. None of it can be done by itself. Verse 9, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in His love. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Verse 12, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. Jesus knows what's coming. And he's he's using this message to prepare them for this this week that's ahead. He's saying it's it's going to be hard. And and if you abandon me, if you I mean they will leave him. He knows that, but, but they won't be fully gone. They will still remain. They'll come back. They'll, they'll find their Savior. They'll flee out of fear, but that won't be what defines them for the rest of their lives. It will be the resurrection of Jesus that will define them for the rest of their lives. That'll be who they are. They'll go out into the world and they'll preach that good news in places that are safe and in many, many places that are dangerous. And, and all of our accounts and everything that we have uh, shows us or points to us that, that the gospel writer here, that John, he's the only one that dies of old age. Everyone else dies as martyrs. They die as people who, who believe this message so deep that they go out and they preach the good news to people that want to hear it, and they preach the good news to places of power and places of influence, and and it costs every one of them their lives. And even here in the Gospel of John, we find uh, not not a young John that is writing this down, but actually uh, he's kind of an old man by this point. And, And there's a lot of things to to make us kind of believe that that he might be the only disciple left by the time he writes down this gospel. And this is what stands out to him from that night. 
this teaching of Jesus has stood out to him, and, and I, I can imagine because it has been so important for the rest of his life. He has continued to learn this lesson as he's gotten older. He's continued to learn this lesson as, as he continues to lean on Jesus and leans on who he is and, and finds his strength there in a world that, that maybe in many ways feels like it's crumbling around him. But yet he has the good news of who this Jesus is. And Jesus has this command for them. He tells them to love each other as I have loved you. The way of the vine is one of these ways of following Jesus. And the way of the vine is a life that is lived in this this honest connection to Christ where we're able to find our strength there, where we're able to lean on him, where where the wind comes and the rain comes and it doesn't flatten us to the ground because we have something else that is holding us, something else that is more powerful, something else that, that we could lean on. And in this text, Jesus not only says to lean, but he promises us something that will happen if we do, which is kind of nice. He promises us that, that this life won't be just by itself, but that, that if we do remain in him, that we will bear good fruit. That we will bear fruit in, in keeping with his love. That, that we will bear fruit that, that God takes joy in. That he will take joy in us and our joy will be complete. Remember, that was all the warnings in the Old Testament. right? Was that the fruit wasn't in keeping with what the vine was supposed to be. That, that all, of, all of the warnings and everything were that, that the fruit isn't there. And, and in, the, in the prophets, they talk about different fruits that that they're not saying, they're saying, you're living like everyone else. The, the people of God started treating the poor terribly. They weren't people of justice. They weren't people of righteousness. They weren't people who looked at the world around them and, and made it a better place because of who their God was. They started looking like the world around them and living in the same way. And, and with the prophets, God is, is bringing someone before them that says, that's not who you were supposed to be. That's not why you're the vine. That's not what's supposed to be going on here. It's supposed to look a certain way. Now, what he's not saying here is that you need to be fruitful, otherwise you're a failure. Right, that's, that's a different voice. I talked in the beginning of the service about the voice that we hear about reading Scripture that don't listen to that voice. If you hear a voice that says, you're supposed to be perfect. See, this, this verse says... Live a perfect life. Where's your, where's your fruit? You should feel bad about yourself. That, that isn't the voice here either. The voice here is, is simply saying that, that if we remain in God and lean on him, that something natural will happen in our lives. That, that if we remain in God, that we don't just need to fight hard to try to produce this kind of fruit in our lives. We need to fight hard to cling to God. And what will naturally happen if we do, what shows health for the vine is that, that it will start to produce fruit in keeping with who our God is. 
that we actually work hard as Christians. If we work hard at anything, we work hard to cling to Jesus. We work hard to follow him. And, and we don't have to work hard to produce the fruit because the fruit is just this natural byproduct that happens when the vine is healthy, when the vine is connected to its source of power, to its source of strength. So we are called to bear fruit, not as proof or evidence that we are followers of Jesus, but simply because we remain in him. So it's not about perfection. It's about journeying with our God. It's not about being perfect. It's about, it's about being so connected with God and so on this journey with him that, that it starts to have these results in our lives, that it starts to look a certain way. Just, just actually this morning, I was listening to uh, some Christian music as I was getting ready, and I heard a new song that I, I haven't heard before, and I don't know the name of it, but there was this line that stood out because I kind of had the sermon on my brain, and there was this line that stood out that said, the devil demands perfection, but God pulls us into relationship." And I thought, that sounds good in this sermon. <laughs> right? Right? There's this fruit part. So, so if the demand in your head is this demand of perfection, that, that again, that is probably not the voice you should be listening to. The devil is the one that says you need to be perfect, otherwise you're a failure. What God wants is the relationship. What God wants is the clinging. God wants us to hold on so dearly to him. Why? Because, because he knows what life is like. He knows that this life is not easy and, and that we can easily be like those tomato plants that just collapse and, and lay there and are fruitless and, and have none of their potential fulfilled. But if we cling to him, if we have something strong that we can lean on, that, that we can be like the 10-foot tall plants. Right? And we can be bearing this fruit. Why, do, why does the plant produce the fruit? Because it's designed to. I, I, I looked at those plants. I never saw them like straining to produce fruit. <laughs> they're just doing what they do because, because their roots are healthy. They're in good soil. They have this stability. They're able to, to kind of hold on. Uh, in that way, and the natural thing that happens is they start to produce these tomatoes, right? And, and it's just uh, this, this beautiful thing. So this verse is not some test for us to kind of look at backwards and say, well, how's the fruit going in my life? And, and kind of work this way and then, and then feel bad about our walks with God. This is actually saying the point of the whole thing is to remain in God, to lean on Him. And I want to be careful not to mix our metaphors here, but, but there is some part of this where we, we kind of look at this and we're like, what, is, what does this fruit look like? And, and when we talk about fruit in the Bible, many Christians, uh, understandably so, go to Galatians 5, and it's the, the fruit of the Spirit, and it has the whole list, and I'll read them for you. And, and before I do, one thing to point out, I did a whole sermon series on this, I don't know, a couple summers ago. Um, fruit here, whenever it's mentioned, is actually a singular word. So it's not fruits of the Spirit, plural. It's just fruit. But it looks a bunch of different ways. Depending on the situation, depending on where we're at, depending on what's going on, the fruit is going to look like different things. And, and it's going to look like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness 
and gentleness and self-control. But it's one fruit. It's one fruit that is being produced uh, with God, with the Holy Spirit. So if you're living a life that, that is abiding with God, that is living with God, here in 15 of, of John 5, it says that we are to love one another. That's the fruit that's described. And, and by the time we get to, to Galatians, Paul kind of expands on the list. He doesn't just say, oh, it's only about, about love, but that love is going to look different ways depending on what's going on, depending on who you're interacting with, depending on what's going on uh, in your world. And, and here, Galatians 5, 22 through 23, and I already read the list, but it, it says this, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So if you're remaining in the vine, if you're remaining in God, if you're clinging to Him, if that's, if that's your identity and you're remaining strong in that, the natural byproduct the natural thing that's going to happen is people are going to interact with you. You're going to interact with this world. This is not always an easy world. And sometimes the wind comes and sometimes the rain comes and sometimes it is hard. But, but what people are going to see in you, little glimpses of God, they're going to see little pieces of evidence of who your Jesus is. And what it's going to look like is it's going to look like love. Maybe in a time where you have no business showing love. Right? It's going to look like joy. I've met people who have joy when all the circumstances of their lives, there's, there's nothing that logically makes sense that they are joyful, but they are. It's going to look like somebody that has peace in a time that's maybe chaotic, in a time that's confusing, but somehow they have this peace about them and it looks in our minds, it looks something like Jesus somehow. Or people that are patient. People that, that are going through something hard, something that, that would drive someone else just, just crazy. And, and yet they look at it and, and they have peace about themselves. Or maybe, maybe their medical situations in their lives are just not going well. And you look... And you look into their lives and you see only what you can see. You see. They have no business having any peace right now. But there's something about them that is just peaceful. And, and somehow that reflects and it looks like their Savior in that moment. Kindness. When the world doesn't expect it. Goodness faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The winds come and the waves come and the storm is here and, and because of who their Savior is, because of who they're, they're following, because they're living this life, because they're living this way of of being the vine and being attached to God, that, that it looks different in their lives. And, and we can be those people. 
and I don't know about you, but like people who live like this, people who reflect, they, they draw me closer to God. When I, when I see them, when I interact with them, there's something about them. There's something about, about how they're living their life and their testimony of who their God is, despite, or regardless of what they're going through, that, that it looks a certain way and it draws each one of us closer to God. So why don't we pray? And we pray that God does a mighty work in each one of us and, and shows little glimpses of this even in our own lives.